Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. We got the Christmas trees up this morning. We got Christmas going this morning, uh, and it's not really Christmas season yet, though. So if you came in, you thought we had the trees up, and you heard some songs, you thought, oh, it's Christmas. No, it's not Christmas. Uh, Christmas is on December 25th. I know that comes as a surprise to many of us. Uh, this is the season of Advent, which maybe you're walking in for the very first time. Maybe you went to churches that didn't do Advent before. Advent is the church season of preparing for the coming of Christ at Christmas. Christmas season is actually after Christmas. Did y'all know that? That once Christmas happens, it's still Christmas season? I can't wait to listen to more songs on the radio. How about you? Um, so this is the Advent season. This is the time when we... we center ourselves and prepare ourselves and wait for the coming of Christ on Christmas Day. And so uh, we're engaged in a new sermon series starting today that I'll say more about in just a minute. But I want to start today's message by saying I'm glad that you're here. Uh, Maybe you took this time of year as a chance to come back to church. I'm glad that you did. I'm glad you found your way here to Lover's Lane. Um, And if you're joining us online, I'm glad you're here as well. And uh, to our first-time guests, we're especially glad that you're here as well. So If you have any questions or anything, feel free to stop me or Reagan. We're the co-pastors of this service called Thrive. Stop us after worship. We'd be glad to talk to you. To start today's message, I want to talk about Christianity in China. I know that's where you thought we were going to start the Advent season. Uh, Christianity in China didn't really appear until sometime around the 7th century, we think, during the Tang Dynasty. Y'all remember the Tang Dynasty, right? And, um, and then in the 16th, but it didn't really like take off, take off, until around the 16th century when Jesuit missionaries started to go to China to spread the gospel, and that's when it really started to take root. And for the next 400 years, right, from 16th century on, it, it really began to grow and grow and grow. And then by the year 1949, there were somewhere around 4 million Christians recorded in the nation of China. In 1949, 4 million Christians. That's a pretty good growth strategy, right, to go from not really anything in the 16th century to 4 million in 1949. Now, of course, the population in China in 1949 was somewhere above half a billion people, so it's still a relatively small number of people in the country of China. And if you know anything about the nation of China, you know that something really, really, really important happened in 1949. That's when the Communist Party came to power in China. And the Communist Party, you could say, has a difficult relationship with religion, specifically Christianity. Uh, The Communist Party uh, would allow Christianity, it still does, it allows the Christian faith, but only um, about two, maybe three, depending how you count them, uh, uh, state-sanctioned Christian denominations. And don't kid yourself, these are denominations that are designed to support and uplift the government of China. At the time, it was to support and uplift Mao Zedong. And, um, And so I want you to imagine yourself as a Christian living in China in 1949. You know, you've seen what happened in the Soviet Union a couple decades earlier. When a similar kind of movement was happening, and a government that also had a really, really even worse relationship with religion, and you saw what it did to the Christian faith in that nation, and you're seeing something similar happen now in China, and maybe the church that you belong to isn't one of the state-sanctioned churches, and so you're watching it burn, and maybe your priest that you've known and loved and has been guiding you in the faith, well, your priest has just been deported because all the missionaries, by the way, were expelled, and so you're one of only four million, which sounds like a lot, but in China it's not. You're one of only four million Christians. And what are you feeling in that moment in 1949? Maybe you're scared. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe you're hopeless. And then this 
somewhat prominent Christian Chinese leader. He writes this this article that goes out to all the different papers, and everyone sees it, and what he says is, you know, I just talked to God, and God said, don't be afraid. Well, isn't that nice? I just talked to God. God told me, don't be afraid. God told me to tell you, don't be afraid. What are you thinking in that moment? Like, be real honest, church. I don't think many of us are thinking, okay, I'm just not going to be afraid. I think most of us are thinking, what a load of hockey. Oh, my gosh. Don't be afraid. I know where this is heading. It's going downhill from here. This is not going to work out. What you're feeling, what I imagine a Chinese Christian was feeling in 1949, is exactly what the Israelites were feeling in the first half of the book of Isaiah. See, the world changes, but it stays the same, yeah. Um, Things tend to come back and repeat themselves. What happened to to the nation of Israel was they were taken over by this outside empire named Babylon. Babylon was a big, strong, glorious empire in their area in their day. And they, like China, had a difficult relationship with religion. They wouldn't allow any faiths that didn't support and prop up their king and their government. And, of course, the nation of Israel was essentially a theocracy, right? Like, faith was everything to them. And so when Babylon took them over, what did they do? Destroyed their temple destroyed their synagogues, destroyed their statues, anything and everything that would remind them of their faith, Babylon tried to snuff out. Because there's no room for a god when you've got a god king, yeah? So the nation of Israel is being sent into exile. One thing Babylon loved to do is they wouldn't let you just sort of stay where you were. They would sort of suck you in. They would absorb you and they would disperse you and they would make you become one of them. They would would sort of indoctrinate you in their culture. And so the Israelites are being led out of their homeland. They're being sent into exile. They don't have their religion. They don't have their temple. They don't have their places of worship. They don't have their statues. And they're feeling pretty fearful. They're feeling pretty anxious. You might say they were even feeling hopeless and then Isaiah speaks up and in chapter 8 Isaiah says God told me to tell you do not be afraid okay thanks Isaiah that's really helpful right now we're starting this new sermon series called fearless today because here's the thing, as much fun as we have at Christmas time, I've already watched a few Christmas movies. We put up our Christmas tree back in like October. Uh, we've been jamming to Michael Buble's Christmas album since like August. Like Christmas time is fun. It's exciting. We love Christmas. And this is not about me saying, you know, oh, Christmas creates anxiety. No, this is much deeper than that. The Christmas story is riddled with fear. If you go and you read the Christmas story in the Bible, and the Christmas story begins in Isaiah, right? Isaiah is the one that prophesies the coming of Christ. There is fear throughout the story, anxiety throughout the story, hopelessness throughout the story. And then we get to Christmas, and we get to meet something incredible, God in the person of Jesus Christ. But I think it's important that we place ourselves in the story, and we don't turn a blind eye to the fact that there is fear and anxiety throughout this narrative. And there is fear and anxiety throughout our world. Google said that the number one search that has increased in the last year has been searches related to anxiety. 
anxiety. Google knows that this is an issue in the world. The church should as well. And if Google can say something, so can we. So let's talk about fear and anxiety because what's cool is in this story, every time someone has a position of fear, God meets them with either God's own voice or the voice of God's messenger, and God says, do not be afraid. And then God tells them why that's possible. So we're going to look at those stories, and we're going to see what they mean for us today, and we're also going to gain a new understanding of this Christmas story that we love. So let's pray over our scripture this morning. We're going to be reading out of Isaiah chapter 8 and 9. Um, you can try to follow along, but it's, it's chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, and then chapters nine, uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7, if you would like to follow along. That's where we're going to be this morning. Let's pray for our scripture and, and begin. Gracious God, whatever thoughts we had when we came into church this morning, Maybe we brought our absolute best selves, and we are so excited for Advent. We are so excited for Christmas. We are so excited to get back into the story again. Or maybe we, we arrived, and we were just in a foul mood. You know, maybe the Starbucks barista made the wrong order, and the kids wouldn't get up on time, and the shirt I wanted to wear had a stain in it, and maybe I'm just showing up, and I'm just in a bad mood. Or maybe we've come, and God, honestly, we don't really care about any of this. And we're just sort of waiting for this hour to be up. However we arrive this morning, God, would you pull us in close? Would you capture our attention? Would you make your story come alive for us in a new way? That we might leave this place changed. That your story would change the way that we live. All this we pray in your son's holy and precious. It's the name we wait upon. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah says this, beginning in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, The Lord spoke to me, taking hold of me and warning me not to walk in the way of this people. He's talking about the, the Israelites at the time. Don't call conspiracy all that, is, all that this people calls conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear and don't be terrified. It is the Lord of heavenly forces whom you should hold sacred, whom you should fear, and whom you should hold in awe. So he says, God's telling me to say to you, don't be afraid. Babylon's conquering lots of people, and lots of people are scared and terrified. He said, don't be like them. Be different. Don't be afraid. And then he goes on to say why they can live in this fearlessness. He says this in chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Now, at this point, Isaiah is speaking as though he's speaking as God himself, right? And when you read your Bible's little shift to kind of this poetry form, that means that the prophet is now claiming the authority to speak for God. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch dark land, light has dawned. You have made the nation great. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as those who divide plunder rejoice. As on the day of Midian, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors. So he's speaking this as a prophecy. This is going to happen one day, guys. Because every boot of the thundering warriors, he says, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned. Fuel for the fire. Let's keep going. A child is born to us. So here comes the Christ prophecy. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. And authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom. Establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The zeal of the Lord of the heavenly forces will do this. Hopelessness is is a problem. It was a problem in the days of Isaiah. You can imagine it was a problem in China in 1949, and it's a problem today. Pew Research Study, if you know me, you know I love statistics and numbers. Pew Research Study, and another Pew Research Study nerds, like I love to read all their little polls on everything. It's always fun for me. They did a poll in 2017. They asked a very simple question. They did it throughout the world, but they they asked Americans um, this question. Do you think that your country is better or worse than it was 50 years ago? 19, or in 2017, just last year, they asked everyone, in, or not everyone, they asked Americans, do you think your country is better or worse than it was 50 years ago? And you know, we're kind of split. 41% of people said it's worse than it was 50 years ago. 2017 is worse than 1967. And then about 37% said it's better. 41%, 37%. And then there were some that just went, I don't know. I imagine that's the official. It's just, ah, just some grunting. So we're kind of split. We can't decide as a people if we're, because if you go and ask, like, like Vietnam, it's like 95%. Oh, yeah, it's better than 50 years ago, right? Um, and you ask some other countries, oh, no, it's much worse than it was 50 years ago. America can't quite figure out if it's better or worse than 50 years ago. You know, I, I, I didn't live during 1967. I know that's surprising. I'm not going to tell you when I was born because it's going to make a lot of you very sad, and I need you to stay with me. Um, so I, I, I was Googling, you know, what happened in 1967? Just out of curiosity, what was the state of things? And the Atlantic Magazine had a, had a series of photos, uh, about 40 photos, some of them I want to share, of, of what things were going on in America, in our world, in 1967. So I want to I go through a few of them right now. This is from, this is from 50 years before that, that, that poll was taken. This is what we can't decide if it was better or worse. This was a, a, a protester, uh, I think, at the University of Wisconsin, who was calling that cop a pig because they'd been firing tear gas at some student protesters who were protesting the war. So if you lived in 1967, you know protests were... They got ugly, they got violent, tear gas, protests, that's still a thing that we're dealing with today, yeah? Next photo. This is from the Boston Marathon. You may recognize this photo. She was the first woman to run in the Boston Marathon, and in 1967, women couldn't even run in the Boston Marathon without men physically attacking them. She had to have a circle of other male runners around her to keep her from random dudes just running off and trying to push her. It's a marathon, y'all. I mean, it's funny, but it's not, right? In 1967, a woman could not run in the Boston Marathon without being physically attacked. But, of course, we know that we haven't gotten everything right when it comes to the way that we treat women today either. Next photo. This is a Viet Cong woman who's being interrogated with a rifle barrel pointed at her head, and she would not survive in the moments that followed. Next photo. This is John McCain after he had just been, in 1967, he was taken in as prisoner of war, would be there for four more years. He would bear those scars and wounds the rest of his life. We just lost him this past year. That was 50 years ago. Is it better or worse today? Next photo. Hey, it's the Klan having dinner. 
Isn't that lovely? They had just finished a, a really exciting, you know, tour of Indiana and Illinois trying to bolster recruitment and get excitement up for the clan. And so they were just grabbing a bite 50 years ago. Have we figured it out yet? I don't know. Next photo, last one. This is not Vietnam. This is not Eastern Europe. This is Detroit in 1967, experiencing the race riots that would literally set that, that city on fire. Now, you might look at these photos, and you might say, obviously, it's better today than it was 50 years ago, if even incrementally. And you might look at those photos and go, Scott, we're dealing with some of the very same things, and and in fact, there's other things that I think have gotten worse, and obviously, it is worse today than it was 50 years ago. I I think as a country, we're kind of split as to which direction we're going. Now, I don't, I'm not going to stand here and say that I think that, that America is the, is the shining city on a hill, that we're the new Jerusalem that, that, that John talks about in Revelation. I don't think that we're perfect. What I want us to be careful of, though, is the spirit of hopelessness that I fear is beginning to take root as, in us as a people. Because hopelessness is not just saying things are really bad right now. That's, it's fine to acknowledge that things are really bad right now or things were bad or things will be bad again. Hopelessness is when you feel like nothing is ever going to get better again. That not only is it really bad right now, that the best days are not before us, they're behind us. That it's all downhill from here. The other thing about hopelessness, how many of us this past week spent a lot of time worrying if Israel was going to get out of exile under Babylon? Anybody? I want to make sure. Take an accurate Pew Research Study poll. Okay, I think that's zero. How many of us were stressed out about whether or not the Vietnam War was going to work out? Now, maybe you did think about the Vietnam War this past week. I don't know. Anybody? Was anybody worrying or stressing about the Vietnam War this past week? Okay, it's a silly point that I'm making, but it's an important one at the same time. We worry, we have fear, we have anxiety, we have hopelessness around things that are right in front of us, right before our eyes. You are probably thinking to yourself, no, Scott, I did not worry about if Israel was going to get outside of Babylon. We're worried about the crisis at the border, or we're worried about the opioid epidemic, or we're worried about our current political climate, or we're worried about climate change. Those are the things that I'm worried and fearful about, and that's honestly things that I might be hopeless about. And, and, and that's the point, too, though, right, is that we get so focused, hyper-focused on the things that are just right in front of us, we get this tunnel vision, and things begin to look hopeless because all you see is everything that's broken, and you wonder if it's ever going to get better, and there's a big part of you that says, I don't think it is. So I want to talk about how we can maybe expand that view. Because the hope of God is not just a hope that the thing right in front of us is going to improve. The hope of God is bigger than that. The hope of God is born out of God's spirit. It's a belief that the story of God is long and the story of God's people is long and there are good days and there are bad days, but the ending is a good one. That's the hope of God. That's a long view, God-sized view of hope, that things truly are getting better over time. So I want to talk about how we can get there. Something else happened in 1967. Let's show this picture. This is a picture of three astronauts, and you may or may not know their names. 
They're not as famous as some of our other astronauts. Virgil Grissom there on the left. In the middle is Ed White. He was the first American spacewalker, so that's super cool for a space nerd like me. And on the right side, is a, it was a rookie astronaut named Roger Chaffee. And they were a part of the Apollo missions that were going to end up with us walking on the moon. Yeah, this is an exciting time in the story of NASA. But unfortunately for these three men, they never got there. Because in 1967, there was a flash fire and all three of them died during the course of a launch. This past week, um, we got some, something really cool. Another photo. 50 years later, is the world better or worse than it was 50 years ago? Um, I'm a super space nerd. Any other super space nerds in the room? I'm so glad that NASA didn't get hopeless when something tragic, that's tragic, flash fire, three astronauts lost, that's tragic. I'm so glad that NASA did not lose hope in what they were about because this last week we got this photo. Let's check this out. Y'all know what that is? If you don't, you got to, like, check in, y'all. This is the coolest thing that happened this past week. Here's what happened. This is the InSight Mars rover. It's just another rover we sent to Mars, right? At this point, it's like Forrest Gump, like, I met the president again. Like, we sent another rover to Mars. You know, like, that's, here's what we did. We packaged up a Roomba, a really, really big Roomba, sent it to Mars, like, shot it out of a cannon at Mars. It landed and it ran. My Roomba at home can't do that. It can't run in my living room. Dog hair gets it stressed out, right? This bad boy went to Mars and he started sending Snapchats, right? This is cool. This is really cool. 50 years after a flash fire, NASA never gave up hope, and now we're getting photos again from the surface of Mars. Like, that's so neat. I think it's important for us as a country that we are fascinated with space. You know, I, I, I don't know if there's a book that's been written about this or a study about this, but I, I find it fascinating that the civil rights conversation and NASA's going to the moon was at the same time, and I wonder if the two had any effect on one another. I wonder if us going to the moon had any effect on us realizing, you know, maybe there's more that unites us than divides us as a people. I think space is really important. Going to space, thinking about space, it changes the way that you see things. You know, NASA's going to colonize Mars, they say. Space is going to be a part of our story for a long time to come. Einstein knew a lot about space, right? Einstein developed the theory of relativity, which I am not about to bore us with this morning. You're like, oh, God, this is where we're going? No. The theory of relativity, it just became foundational for understanding, like, astrophysics. And, space is weird, y'all. The way that space and time works together out there, it is not like here on Earth. It gets weird real fast. And Einstein was able to develop this theory of relativity that allowed us to do one thing that's really cool. It did a lot of things. But one thing that's really cool that it did was it allowed us to measure the distance of things that were really crazy far away. Because before we could measure distance of things like the sun or other planets. But this thing was, like, able to measure things in light years, which is super cool. And the first planet they measured that was crazy far away uh, was a planet called Kepler-76b. Y'all know this one, I know. Um, Kepler-76b is now known as the Einstein planet. It's the first one they measured using Einstein's special theory of relativity. And they measured it, and it came back that it was 2,000 light years away. 2,000. Dude, 
If you don't know what a light year is, it is kind of what it sounds like. It is the distance that light travels over the course of a year. You heard me correctly, right? So you, you turn on it, you're like, light's instantaneous. No, it's not. It's particles. They move crazy fast through space. And, and so here on Earth, you shine a flashlight, it's instant because it moves really fast. But in space, light travels. And, and, and during the course of a light year, that's the distance that light travels over the course of a year. This planet is 2,000 light years away. That's a really, really long way. Now, here's the cool thing, though, is that when we look at this planet, let's say you got a really big telescope, and you were to look at this planet, and you were to see it like, hey, Kepler-76b, you're looking good. You're not actually seeing Kepler-76b today. What are you seeing? You're seeing Kepler-76b as it was 2,000 years ago, because that light has been traveling all this time just to get to your little eyeball. That's kind of cool. So when we look at stars in the sky, we're not seeing the star as it is of this moment. We're seeing the star as it was when the light first started coming here. So there are stars in the sky that don't even exist anymore, but we don't know it yet because it hasn't gotten here yet. It gets cool, right? Now let's take it one inch further. Let's say you were standing on Kepler-76b and you were looking at Earth. What would you see? You would see the Earth as it was 2,000 years ago. What was happening on the earth 2,000 years ago? We're about to talk about it again. You'd be seeing the Christ child on the earth. Now, give or take a light year. You know, I don't know if Jesus is like an infant or like a toddler or like 13. Just, you know, stay with me. But you're seeing, you're seeing the Christ child, right? You're seeing this, this prophecy that... that Israelites living in Babylon hundreds of years before wondered if it was ever going to come, and you get to see it happening. You're seeing this Christ child on the earth. How cool would it be to be on Kepler-76b right now? Space changes the way that you see the world. Think of all the things that you were about to encounter, all the things that in our last 2,000 years that we thought were going to be the end of us, and, and you're just now starting to watch it happen, but, but you get to see the Christ child today. When we get to zoom out our view a little bit, I think that when we look at the earth the way that you look at Kepler-76b, we begin to see things the way that God sees them. That The story is so much bigger than whatever tunnel vision view we have in the moment. That there are bigger things going on. The story is much grander and greater than just that. And that over the course of time, that, that arc of the universe is long as we say, but it does bend towards justice and goodness and perfection. You know, the people in China in 1949, I, I imagine they were terrified. They were scared. And I imagine there were some Chinese Christians that said, God's going to be with us. And I'm sure there were plenty of Chinese Christians that said, yeah, right. You know that today in the country of China, there's at least 15, record, 15, not 15, 15 million recorded Christians living in the country of China. Even with everything against them, 15 million Recorded Christians attending these state-sanctioned Christian churches that they're allowed to have. It has grown from 4 million to 15 million. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I love it when God's story works out, right? I love it when, when I can feel that fear and anxiety leave me and I can trust that, you know, this is going to work out. And for the Chinese, it's worked out. And, and for Israel, it worked out. And certainly with the arrival of Christ, it works out. And that's where I want to leave the sermon today, but I can't. 
I would love to end there. Wouldn't that be a good ending? I could really get sermonic right now and like, whatever you're facing, God's going to pull through. It's going to work out. Just wait. Just wait upon the Lord. It's going to work out exactly what you're waiting for. Claim those promises. It's going to work out. I would love to end there. God, that'd be inspiring. I bet it would feel good. I bet bet there are some people in the room who walked in this morning wanting to hear that it was going to work out. It's going to work out just like we wanted it to. But if I told you that the hope of God was simply about expecting things to work out the way we want them to, I'd really be telling you a half-truth, as good as it might sound. It's not the good news that we need today. I want to stand on Einstein's planet. Let's stand on Kepler-76b one more time. And I want you to look at the earth, and I want you to see the Christ child. And I want, to tell, I want you to tell me again what you see. Because what you see might be different than what the people on earth see. Because what we see is we see the child that's going to become Jesus. See, we know how that story ends. story sounds different when you know how it ends, right? Maybe that's why God's got so much peace. So we know where Jesus' story ends. We know that, that he's going to ride on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem one day. We know that he's going to be handed over to the powers that be. We know that he's going to be crucified and died and resurrected. We know how his story ends. But the people on earth, as you're watching from Kepler-76b, they got no idea. And so what do they see? What do they think is going to happen? Well, I'll tell you right now, a lot of them are getting back to Isaiah, and they're reading Isaiah again. And they're saying, this is going to be good. Christ child's here. You know what that means for us? Do you know what that means for us when the Christ child comes? Let's, 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 let's hear that again. This means that on the day of Midian, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them. The staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors are shattered because every boot of the thundering warriors, looking at you, Roman Empire, in Jesus' time, every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and his kingdom. You don't know how the story is going to end if you're standing on earth 2,000 years ago and you're looking at this Christ child and you're saying, this is going to be a king. And we're about to kick some butt. And it's going to be awesome. In fact, it's that precise expectation that leads Jesus to a cross, right? It's the fact that the people of Israel cannot comprehend that Jesus is something different than what they'd expected. If you keep reading in Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah, they start talking about this guy named King Cyrus. Well, King Cyrus was the king of Persia. He was a great king. He knew how to break some rods. He knew how to burn some bloody rags, right? And he liberated the Israelites. He sent them back to Jerusalem. He let them build their temples. He was a good and mighty king, but he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah. Jesus was not going to work out the way that they wanted him to. See, they thought they were hearing Isaiah say, have hope because everything is going to work out. And maybe that's what you heard when we first read Isaiah. Maybe that's what I wanted to hear when I first read Isaiah. But that's not what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, have the hope of God because God is doing something that you cannot even begin to imagine. God is doing something in you that is bigger than you. It is bigger than the crisis that you are facing. Now, I know that we're at church, and I know that we're supposed to show up and pretend like everything is okay and everything's fine, but I know for a fact that several of us, many of us, maybe every single one of us walked into here this morning and we're facing some kind of Babylon-sized crisis. 
Maybe you're going into the Christmas season and you just lost your job. Maybe you just separated from your spouse. Maybe you're having troubles with your kids that you just can't figure out. Maybe you're having a financial crisis. Maybe you or someone you love just got the diagnosis that you didn't want. That was one of my friends this week. And you might think that what you want to hear from a preacher on a Sunday morning is, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. The Israelites thought that's, the, that's what they wanted to hear. But that's not what they needed to hear. And that's not what we need to hear because Jesus didn't work out the way that we wanted. In fact, it got so bad that we ended up killing him. Here is the difficult truth, but church, hear me clearly. This is the good news that we need to hear this morning. Are you all ready? Because I'm going to say this slow and probably twice. A life with God does not guarantee that everything will work out. A life with God does not guarantee that everything will will work out, not the way that you want it to. Here's what it does mean. A life with God guarantees that your life is more meaningful than you can imagine, that your life is more than just your life. When you are invited into God's story, when you walk with God, your life ceases to be just about your life. Your life ceases to be about whatever crises you face or whatever victories you have. Your life is about so much more. God is in the business of giving meaning to everything. That is the good news this morning. A life with God does not guarantee that everything is going to work out the way that you want. You might not get the new job that you felt really good about. You might not get that job that you thought you had a great interview for. You might not be able to save your marriage. It might not work out the way that you wanted to. You might not have kids that turn out the way that you wanted them to. Your body might not respond to treatment the way the doctors thought that it would. And it would be really easy for you in those moments to get tunnel vision and be hopeless. Lord knows I've been there too many times to count. But... The good news that I need this morning and I pray that you can receive is that your life is not bound by the crises that you're facing. And even if everything doesn't work out the way that you expect, a life with God is worth it because your life is bigger than you could ever imagine. Your life has more meaning than you ever could imagine. Even the most momentary walk with God could have effects that last millennia that we'd never even know. The church in China is not 15 million people. It's over 60 million people because God is doing something that the Chinese government cannot see. 60 million people in the underground church in China. 60 million people Worshiping Jesus and they don't have a clue. If I had 60 people in this room extra next week, I would notice. God does incredible things that we'll never, ever, ever be able to see. And so maybe you were hoping I'd tell you that it's all going to work out, but I have even better news for you this morning. It might not work out, and God has still done an incredible thing through you and your life. And a walk with God is worth it because it means every second was meaningful. That's good news. That's the hope of God. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you for making my life about more than just me. Thank you 
for making our lives about more than just us. Thank you for the ways in which you have multiplied even the smallest moments of faith. The things that you have done with us and through us that we will never even see. Thank you for reminding us that every second on this earth is precious. Not because of who we are, but because you are with us. God, as we prepare to wait upon your Christ child again, as we prepare to wait for you in the person of Jesus, remind us that we find hope in Christ because he reminds us that when you are with us, everything, everything is given meaning. Everything is given purpose. Everything is given a story, is given value, is given worth. And though our lives can be fleeting and messy and beautiful and painful and harmful and wonderful and real, whether we walk with you for a lifetime or for a moment, it's worth it. You've made it worth it. You call us by name. You name us your children. You give us our worth. For that, we have hope and are eternally grateful.